and welcome to One Great History, the podcast all about the great and not so great parts of Manitoban history. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer, Nick. How's it going? I don't have to talk so much this week. Yay! What a relief for you, hey? (laughs) (laughs) You say that as if you're like, oh, thank goodness, we don't have to listen to Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's it's, it's a mutually enjoyable experience it was a break for us and then <laughs> now you awesome. get another year-long break until next time yeah. <laughs> we're doing a fun little beach episode today that's nice going to grand little, beach good little summer episode yeah now that it's not quite so hot yeah i wait until summer's ending to do the beach episode always timely <laughs> that's what they say about us we're on top <laughs> of things so we have done a beach episode before you did winnipeg beach last was it last summer or last fall I didn't feel like it was, like, way back at the beginning of the podcast. It was sometime. We did it once. Yeah. We did Winnipeg Beach. I, it was not timely. I don't think it was in the summer. <laughs> Classic us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Grand Beach and Winnipeg Beach sort of have some, like, history overlaps, so I thought it'd be interesting to compare. Oh, cool. I did not listen to your episode to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going only on my memory of what you told me. Nice. <laughs> have you been to Grand Beach before? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Nick, not- have you? Long time yeah. ago, yeah. Yeah, not in a little while. It's a bit more of a drive than some of the other ones. Yeah, so I hadn't been until the summer because growing up in Morris. Oh, Morris, you hadn't. It's like two and a half okay. hours yeah, away. Yeah. We always Again, used to go... St. Malo is like 20 minutes. Yeah. We always used to go because that was the one that had like the big waves. Yes. So we'd go on like a windy day and, you know, jump in the waves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't been until I started working out there and then got to go spend some time out at the beach. Nice. I'm not a beach person is the catch to no, this. No, not like not at all. No, no, I don't. I'm you're, not. Well, you're not really a like lying down kind of person. No, I don't like lying down. Uh huh. I don't like the heat. Yeah. I'm not like big on swimming. Okay. So I'm just gonna like. Those are the main beach things. I'm like it's hot, and I don't like sitting. Yeah. Why would I be here? <laughs> I like swimming and I like lying down. Yeah. You and I have very different vacation styles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the. The travel series we one day maybe do will end in us murdering each other, I think. <laughs> I think that's the end here. Or or just me calling home and leaving <laughs> without telling The anyone. old Irish exit in the yeah. middle of a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> Be pretty mad if you did that one. Okay, I'll try not to. Mostly just like a, did you die? Because you fall a lot also. Uh, well, <laughs> just did Alex... Did Alex leave without telling me? Did, or she, did fall she fall into fall a ravine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, with Winnipeg Beach, there wasn't a whole lot of like earlier settlement stuff to it. It was just kind of like the C- the CPR showed up and was like, "Well, this is ours now." Right. People were kind of passing through the area, not mm-hmm. living there. With Grand Beach, you can't really talk about it without talking about Grand Marais. Okay. Because there was a settlement there already. Mm-hmm. So Grand Marais sits sort of like outside of Grand Beach Provincial Park. It's like framing it. Okay. Along the outcropping on the water. So it's a pretty small community within the RM of St. Clements. The area has been called Grand Marais since the 1790s. Ow. That is when um, the French explorer Lavrenger found it, in quotation marks, looking for the Pacific Ocean. Am I allowed to make fun of your French pronunciation? Yeah, how do you say that? <laughs> Lavrenger. Lavrenger. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I've only ever seen it in writing. It was like, oh, yeah. maybe. <laughs> Didn't learn French in school, so it's all guesswork. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he finds the area searching for the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> or a route to the Pacific Ocean, at least. Yeah. Does not find it, but he does find... Finds Grand- a nice beach. Uh, he finds Grand Marais, or the Big Marsh. 
<laughs> okay. Because a lot of the area is wetland. There's right. a beach, but actually a significant chunk of the park is marshland. Yeah. So that's what the area is named. Um, people had been there before, of course, off of that little sort of bay. Indigenous people had used it to fish for a number of years. And then mm-hmm. Métis people start living there afterwards. And it becomes kind of a small industrial community. So there's fishing. Okay. There's logging. There's actually a pier to transport goods. So by like the mid-1800s, people are living there full-time and using it as a logging town, essentially. I had no idea it was that old. It's pretty old. Not all of the old buildings are there anymore, of course. I mean, I haven't really been like in the community at all. I've only been to the beach. It's mostly cottages now. Okay. But yeah, it's also near uh, Brokenhead Reserve. That's like 20 minutes away. And then Mm -hmm. there's a reserve out near uh, Powerview Pine Falls, too. So Mm -hmm. like, it's still a pretty indigenous area. Right. Uh, by the 1950s, there's about 250 Métis families in the area. Okay. That's like, it's a rough study done in the 50s. We don't know who was like self-reporting as Métis and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. So the number might be larger. We don't really know. But like, yeah. a, it's a good-sized Métis community in the area. Okay. But for the most part, it was just like an indigenous town for a number of years because, of course, the train doesn't reach Grand Marais until okay. 1916. It takes a bit longer for the Canadian Northern Railroad to get out there. Mm-hmm. But people were kind of, like, aware there was a beach there. There'd been some attempts to go and take advantage of it as early as uh, 1894. Okay. Like, by boat? By boat. This is a three-hour journey. Oh. You take the train from it's Winnipeg. Nice beach. I don't know if it's that nice. No, especially when there's other beaches you yeah. can go to that are closer. Yeah. So you take the train from Winnipeg to Selkirk. Mm-hmm. And you would take a boat across the river to Grand Marais. Oh, jeez. So this is the uh, description of the beach circa 1894. A large bay having a long stretch of sandy beach may well be called the bather's paradise. For for picnickers, it is the place par excellence. Those who desire to do so can stroll over the hills and dales hidden among the trees from prying eyes. While those who wish to bathe can retreat a mile or so from the main party and sport themselves to their heart's content. Nice. Just a nice little beach. Yeah. The first excursion out there is organized by the Anglican Church. And it does not go as planned. Oh, no. All the guests, and I'm going to quote the Tribune on this one, came back accepting the boat which took them out there. Oh, no. (laughs) So how did they get back? So the boat they're on, the Sultana, gets stuck in the bay. It, like, runs aground and can't get out. Right. So everyone gets stuck there overnight. (laughs) They are not prepared for an overnight trip. They have to sleep in the sand dunes. Oh, jeez. Uh, so then another boat coming by, the Ripple tries to tow the Sultana out, fails. The Red River Steamer come, comes along, also fails. The next morning, the Red River comes back and takes everyone home. But the Red River is a trip doing, like, sort of industry stuff. It has other stops to make. Oh. The return trip takes them six hours. Oh, my God. I, I would cry during a lot of this experience. Yeah. Uh, the Tribune noted, after all of this, everybody, with the exception of one or two, seemed in fairly good humor. Okay. Um, they also get off the boat in Selkirk and immediately encounter a church picnic full of children. Oh. And by this point, everyone is kind of aware that, like, a boat has been stuck across, like, Winnipeg yeah. for a while. So it's like, oh my god, they made it back. It's big news. So right. there's a crowd waiting for them. Okay. The uh, Free Press reports the encounter as, They met the unfortunate Grand Marais excursionists who, after their all-night experience in the lake, were eagerly looking for sympathy and something to eat. Uh, yeah, I guess they'd be hungry. Yeah, there wasn't food. Yeah. And not everyone involved in the trip was in good spirits. A couple days later, someone does actually write in a complaint letter to the Winnipeg Tribune 
the ship didn't have proper accommodations for an overnight stay because it wasn't meant to be one. Mm -hmm. And their main complaint was the whole sanitary convenience was an apology for a closet without water, which had to be used by both sexes. So an outhouse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, obviously. None of us like it when we get somewhere and support a potty. Yep. There's also uh, one lifeboat. They complained about poor navigation because the boat shouldn't have just driven directly into the harbor. (laughs) Ideally. And the letter is signed, a stop must be put to such frauds as the recent Grand Murray excursion or disastrous results will ensue. Yours truly a disgusted Anglican. Oh my. So obviously these uh, trips didn't become very popular. Well, that's not great publicity. But not great publicity and also like a three hour journey just to get there. Just to get to a beach. And like also people weren't doing a ton of swimming i don't think in 1916 oh this like is this earlier. is the 1890s oh, oh then for 1890s sure yeah they're just like sitting on the sand yeah i mean they said for bathers so like bathing wasn't encouraged you just like sneak away i guess yeah but yeah not like the sort of thing to do so much and like if you're looking for a closer beach circa 1894 yeah there are many also people were just swimming in the river in winnipeg yeah so we don't see a lot of people regularly coming out for tourism until the Canadian Northern Railroad, the CNR, starts building a railroad out there to make a resort similar to Winnipeg Beach. Nice. Their intention is to build um, sort of railway branches in Grand Marais and Inwood Fisher and then creating resorts in Victoria Beach and Grand Marais. This comes a bit later than Winnipeg Beach, but Winnipeg Beach is, of course, a Canadian Pacific Railway project. These are ah. in competition with each other. Oh, interesting. So the CPR basically has the west side of the lake, and the CNR has the east side mm-hmm. of Lake Winnipeg. So do you think it was in, like, direct response to that? They were like, oh, hey, we should also have a little resort town? It's possible they were, like, inspired by the idea. I don't think yeah. it was super uncommon for railroads to be like, we need to create little tourist things. Yeah. Because the CNR is the one that were opening all of the railroad hotels, like the Fort Gary. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess having more amenities encourages people to actually use get the train trains. tickets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the resort of Victoria Beach was designed to be a bit more like exclusive, whereas Grand Beach was meant to be sort of the resort of like the workers. It's right. the Winnipeg Beach, the one everyone can get to and go to. Yeah. Except for the fact that initially train service didn't run frequently, so workers who had days off couldn't always get out there on like Sundays. Oh yeah. Yeah, one of those things. So the interest in a resort doesn't actually automatically lead to like a big boon for the community that's already living there mm-hmm. uh in 1915 an indigenous mis- missionary um edward thomas goes to winnipeg to try and get the government to build a school out in grand marais mm-hmm. uh they don't have one there's 25 kids in the community and the community has been pushing for a school for about two years they get their school district by 1916 and the school is built in 1917 okay and the old schoolhouse is actually still standing oh nice it's a little concrete cottage huh. that's out of the park mail In the interim, the train ride, uh, the train to Grand Marais and Victoria Beach opens, and it's completed for excursions by 1915, with round trips visiting both, sort of as, like, their inaugural vacation. Right. People have been kind of staying in the area a little bit over the course of construction, though, because the CNR workers would bring their families to camp for the summer while oh, they worked. Fun. Well, no. <laughs> not every uh, spouse liked being dragged out okay. <laughs> to camp all summer long while their husband worked and they were left alone with their children. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So there's not I like don't know, a, maybe it's better than like being alone with your child in the like hot city all summer still. But without any of the modern conveniences That's of the city, true. you have to like cut your own firewood and stuff. Oh, and there's no yeah. place to buy things. So there's no stores. Right. There's no bathrooms. <laughs> there's no running water. Yeah. Uh, so there's not actually any plan for like overnight trips yet, but people sort of camping in the dunes, just in the sand. Yeah. 
when it opens, the marketing for the beach reads, Everything is now in readiness to handle the crowds expected. A dancing pavilion, refreshment booths, bathing houses, all newly erected and fully equipped. Grand Marais Beach, this recently discovered Coney Island, is expecting a big season and prepared for it. Coney Island already. A big claim considering it's just like, we've got a dance house. Yes. And a beach. I mean, it's pretty fast to have put up a dance hall already. The dance hall goes up pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's built by like 1917. Yeah. I think around 40,000 to build. So right away they're like, we know what people want. Yeah. It's dancing. But it's interesting that they're still saying like recently discovered in their description of it by 1916 when people have like known about this for a while. Oh, yeah. Like the rhetoric normally comes up in like the 1800s. Right. 1916's a little late. It's, it's a little late. I mean, I guess that's marketing, right? Yeah, but also the proximity to Indigenous and Métis people is like an observed feature of the park. So Yeah, so discovered in big quotation marks. Yeah, like a schoolgirl who goes out there writes a letter to the Tribune about seeing Indigenous people taking the train. Right. And she's like, oh, they were like here, they were in the community. Um, They had their photo taken with an Indigenous guy in the area. Oh, like one of those things where yeah. it's like they're the... Like, they're the tourist attraction. Yeah. yeah. So it's very weird to be like, we discovered this. Right. The people that live here? No. No. <laughs> they didn't know anything about it. And it's only around 1916, 1917, the name uh, Grand Beach starts getting used. Okay. It's sort of the Grand Marais Park until... Well, I guess if, like, Marais means marsh, it's a lot nicer for marketing to be like, it's a beach. Yeah. Yeah, um, the first mention I could find comes in June of 1916, and by July 1st, the area is being referred to as Grand Beach, formerly known as Grand Marais. Okay. So they're rebranding. Yeah. The official opening takes place on June 17th, 1916. There's about 500 people taking the train out. There's not many facilities, and the campsites aren't plotted out. So... Behind the beach and sheltered by a ridge of sand dunes, there is a large landlocked bay in which boating can be indulged in safety. No matter how stormy winds blow, the lands reserved for campers and cottages rise 15 to 20 feet above the lake and have a splendid forest growth of oak, elm, birch, maple, and poplar in a water frontage of five or six miles. Nice. So nice advertising for like a lovely little cottage property. It's just yeah. not quite there yet. So they're surveying campsites at this point in time mm-hmm. in 1916. And... Once land is plotted, campers can pitch their tents free of charge on land of their choosing. And beginning around uh, July 1st, Moonlight Excursions will start. Oh. Or the old Moonlight Express. Love the Moonlight Express. So by July 1916, the Moonlight Excursions are costing about 50 cents, which leave Winnipeg around 5.15. Mm-hmm. You then head out, spend the night, you take the train back around midnight to get home by Moonlight. Nice. Yeah. A lovely little trip. The excursion allowed for two hours of dancing and bathing. Okay, so yeah, I guess if you, well, is there overnight accommodation yet? I guess just the campground, right? Campground, yeah. So, like so I guess could... if you don't want to camp, you can just go out after work for a couple hours. Just, and then, then head back home. Yeah. Totally. So the amenities they finally build are a dance hall, a carousel, a bathing house to change into swimsuits, a concession stand, and then a boardwalk. But it's really camping that starts to bring people out to Grand Beach before all of that comes up. Yeah. And when I was looking at this, I started thinking about how weird camping is as, like, a recreation thing. <laughs> yeah. In the 1910s, specifically. Okay. Because, like, we're looking at a time when people are, like, living in cities now, but camping is just, like, we're going to go, like, live on the farm with no shelter. Yeah. I mean, I still think camping is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. You're not an outdoorsy person. I'm not an outdoorsy person. I'd rather sleep in a bed. Yeah. I understand the appeal of looking at the outdoors from a nicely heated <laughs> slash air-conditioned cabin. <laughs> 
So camping is sort of the result of like increased urbanization, some sort of nostalgia for the frontier. Right. So I started looking into the history of camping. That was one of my fun little detours. Oh, interesting. Do you have more to tell us about camping? I do. So camping literally becomes popular after the 1860s. Mm-hmm. The term camping might come from the term military encampments. Okay. And it's popularized by William H.H. H. Murray, who does a number of outdoor excursions to the Adirondacks in New York in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And once he's done these, he publishes his journals. Um, like a travel guide for the time. People start coming out to the Adirondacks to right. camp like he had. Is camping, like, is it mostly a North American thing even now? Like, do do Europeans go camping? I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know either. So people start camping in national parks not long after that, and then by the 1900s, starting to sort of reach Canada more earnestly. Mm-hmm. And it's become kind of like a recreational activity for urban families. Yeah. They'll get back to nature. Right. I mean, I guess this is the whole period when they were talking about, like, how healthful it is to be exactly in nature, right? Which, I mean, given the fact that we were putting all kinds of pollutants into the air. Sure, yeah. Might have been might have been true. A little bit true, yeah. <laughs> there is actually some military influence in Grand Beach as well. A lot of the tents that are cropping up by 1916 are called Donaldas or Donaldos. Okay. They're like canvas-style tents that look a bit like tents used during World War One. Hmm. See, I believe I saved a picture. There we go. This is the Grand Beach campsite. Okay, that looks a little nicer than I would have expected. I feel like I see some like shacks, and that tent is like it. It looks more like a like a circus tent almost, but like yeah. smaller. Yeah, they're semi permanent tents, so they're right. not like they're ones you can leave up for most of the season unless like a tree falls on them. Right, which did happen sometimes. <laughs> I guess. So yeah, the campsites become really popular. So people start like really snatching up the leases on those spots, and they start staying there. Almost for an entire season. Mm-hmm. CNR employees' families are staying there while they work. So, like, it becomes kind of a bustling little community. Mm-hmm. And then uh, by 1918, campers are retaining leases on their site from previous years. And then starting to build, like, gardens on their property. The railway starts adding lights, street signs, and site markings as well. So it's becoming sort of like a camp town. Yeah. Um, All 300 of the campsites have been booked in 1918. So people are coming out. And then at the time, Walter Pratt, who is the CNR's general superintendent of the Canadian Northern Railway Sleeping, Dining, Parlor, Car, Hotel, and News Department. Wow. That's a lot of title. (laughs) He suggests building some permanent cabins. His business card is just like an eight and a half by 11. And a very like baffling acronym. Yeah. Sorry, I, yeah. I distracted you no, from No, that's we were... totally fine. It's just a very long thing. <laughs> it's a very long thing. So yeah, then by 1920, all of the amenities are open. So this includes like the dance hall, the carousel, all of that fun stuff. Dances are only five cents. Okay. So you pay for a dance. Yeah. This is called a jitney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the term jitney comes from a slang term for like a cheap taxi. Okay. A jitney is a five cent cab or a five cent dance. Oh, fun. And then the carousel gets really popular. People start going on that. This is a bunch of wooden horses that go on a so like a slow circle yeah. in a closed building. People, I mean, we know what a carousel is. Yeah, I don't know. They talk about it like it's this big magical oh, thing, yeah, I guess. and it's just it's just a merry-go-round. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe just the fact that it's kind of mechanical is interesting yeah. and fun at that point. I don't know. Um, there's also concession stands as well as an ice house. Okay. The ice house is kind of interesting because the area is so remote that like there's no hospital. It's easily accessible. So. Mm. 
if someone died in Grand Beach, the ice house oh, no. also became the morgue. Gross. <laughs> I don't want the morgue ice. Too bad. That's <laughs> what you're getting. <laughs> no. So you could pay 25 cents for a block of ice, or if you were camping there, they provide- Or 30 cents for non-morgue ice. ice. There's a little uptick. Yeah. There's some stories from, like, kids in the community trying to sneak in to, like, see if they could see Ooh. bodies in the morgue. Yeah. Or the ice house. <laughs> but even with all that, people are still, like, camping by the 1920s, and the free press starts talking about how it's, like, free of gender divides, essentially, in the camping. Like, it changes the layout of the household. Oh, interesting. So the free press observed that- one hapless Benedict was cheerfully performing that job which is so often a bone of contention, dishwashing. The very vigorous method in which he polished them left no doubt that they would be well done. And from the smiles with which he favored the passersby, it was evident he harbored no rancor for a wifey who had left him to his fate. What a... <laughs> just just the praise we are lavishing upon this man. He did for... the dishes. And he did them well. Yeah. <laughs> Not... Everyone enjoyed this. One woman whose husband worked for the CNR was interviewed and she complained that camping there was like living outside normally, but without any conveniences of city living. Like all of her appliances were gone. She had a newborn. Yeah. Everything was by hand and she had two kids with her and she hated it. Yeah. I mean, that's camping. (laughs) Yep. Except like pre, you know, they probably didn't have little uh, camp stoves and stuff. I don't know. Some of them might have brought them out, but it still would have been more work than a stove at home. For sure. So, slowly they start to replace the uh, tents with wooden cabins, mm-hmm. especially the ones that have, like, a long-term lease that they renew every summer, and they start to build more permanent structures. But, for those that don't like camping, like you, a hotel did open up in 1920. Nice. It cost $50,000 to build, it had a, like, landscape garden, a big sundial, and a swing that was shaped like a boat outside. Oh, fun. There is no picture of this boat that I can find that, oh. like, makes me understand what happened with it. <laughs> The interior has, like, fireplaces and hand-tuned furniture and then American and European plans. Okay. The difference there is that an American plan comes with meals from the restaurant. The European plan doesn't have meals included. Huh. I have never heard of such a thing. It's in all of the marketing for the hotel is that we've got both American and European price plans. So I guess people knew what that meant. Yep, I guess. Huh. Um, by the mid-1920s, the CNR hotels were operating largely at a deficit. Like, they were not making money. Oh, was it just, like, was the idea just that they would make money for, like, out-of-train tickets? Well, or were they trying to make money with They the were trying to make money. The CNR is one that's operating Chateau Laurier, the yeah. Fort Garry Hotel, like, these big, lavish resort hotels right. off of train stations. But most of them aren't making money. They ran ten hotels. Of them, Grand Beach, Chateau Laurier, and the Prince Arthur Hotel were making a profit. Okay. So that means that the Fort Garry Hotel is actively losing money by 1924. Mm. So it's interesting that Grand Beach is still making money yeah. out of this, but they see like 10,000 people coming out on one weekend. Oh, wow. So like they are popping and people are staying, I guess. Yeah. Part of this might be because that there were work groups that came up pretty frequently. They did like school trips and work trips and mm-hmm. like conferences and picnics. Um, they have like a grocer's picnic. The International Order of Oddfellows come out, and then there's an orphan's picnic where they just, like, ship a ton of orphans out to the beach for a day. <laughs> I mean, that's nice. I, I, On a similar note to, like, camping being kind of a weird thing, picnicking was a big weird thing. Yeah, let's go eat outside. It, it, like, that's the whole thing. Yep. With our coworkers yep. a lot of the time. Yeah, the work picnic is interesting, because that's, like, it brought yep. out a lot of 
people. I mean, it's similar like we have a work softball team, which we don't see as much anymore either. No, no, we don't so much socialize with our co-workers. <laughs> no, I feel like your social network circa 1910 was the people you worked with. Yeah. More than like the people we went to high school with. Right. Um, at the orphans picnic, there's about 3,500 orphans. And the when a picture Tribune makes it clear several times that there are no accidents at the event. Uh, All of the orphans are fine. Okay, great. <laughs> I guess because, like, you're sending a bunch of kids out to the beach. Yeah. Was the idea just that, like, there might have been. Yeah, like, if you were worried these kids hurt themselves, they didn't. Yeah. Don't freak out. Good. I'm glad the orphans were fine. <laughs> there were uh, toys and food and games and a table of milk available for the children. <laughs> Not the milk. <laughs> I told you milk was going to come up in That's this episode. Right. You were warned. So there's just milk sitting out in the it's hot the first grand time beach I've heard sun. Of a table of milk. Just Do you... have you seen the you've seen Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah. Well, no. I watched it once and didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a scene where he's working at a chicken farm. Okay. And they all get together for lunch, and there's just like a table with like there's like milk and like boiled eggs. Oh. And um, just like. Yeah, just various egg products, and somehow it just reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of. But only milk, no eggs. Yeah. There's just a lot of cute pictures of, like, orphans hanging out at the beach and stuff, too. And then some young mothers came out with their kids because they were, like, war widows attending this thing as well. But their biggest picnic by far is the annual caterers picnic. This happens on July 1st every year. It brought up to 13,000 people to the beach in one day. It's a lot of picnickers. And most of them were Winnipeg grocers, like... Grocery stores would shut down their stores <laughs> and take the train out so to no, go. No, no dinner today, kids. No, all the grocers left town to go to the beach again. <laughs> and they had like these big like contests. They had like wheelbarrow races, three-legged races, beauty contests for women, beauty contests for babies. <laughs> there was a most beautiful baby every year. <laughs> and also um, the largest family. One oh. family won it for, like, several years in a row because they had 15 kids. <gasps> no. None of which were twins or triplets. They were all single children. All by the same mother? Yes. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of kids. I mean, I bless them. I hope they were very happy. They won that contest yeah. every year, so good for them. Yeah. I guess. But the... Uh, most beautiful baby one is the funniest one. It's just like, there's a picture of a baby that looks like a normal baby. And they're like, this is it. It's the best baby of the year. I mean, both, most babies look kind of similar. They're cute. Oh, yeah. Um, Do you ever, have you weird. watched I Think You Should Leave? Uh, I don't know. It's like a new, our newish Netflix sketch show. And there is a like baby of the year contest. And the joke oh, is that there's no, the I bad don't. boy baby named Bart Harley Jarvis. And everyone hates <laughs> Bart Harley Jarvis. And they just, it's a baby wearing a leather jacket. And everyone's like, boo, you suck, Bart Harley Jarvis. Well, it is weird that you would have to go through the babies, presumably, and be like, not this baby. This is not the most beautiful baby. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure some mothers were like, no, my baby is. Yeah. You're wrong. But I, I hope every mother was like, no, my baby is the most beautiful baby. <laughs> it's pretty upsetting to be like, nah, my baby's only okay. I know someone who did, like, her son looked kind of weird when he was born. He just, like, the head was weird. Yeah. That happens when kids are born sometimes. Yeah. And we went to see her a little bit later, and she was like, you know, I wasn't so sure about him at first. I'm coming around <laughs> on it. <laughs> oh, no. Very cute kid now, but just, yeah. like, refreshing honesty. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. 
So as we get into the 1930s, Grand Beach doesn't change a whole lot with the Depression. Like, it seems like it's still kind of a bumping resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concession stand serves fries and vinegar in, like, a newspaper. And there is a drink stand that serves Hot Lips ginger beer. Ah. It uh, tastes sweet at first and then burns on the way down. Uh, boy, I guess that's ginger beer. <laughs> it sounds bad. Actually, that sounds really good to me. <laughs> I, okay. I like a, a ginger beer that, like, punches you in the face. I don't like that idea. <laughs> I don't like camping, but I want my beverage to punch me <laughs> want, in the face. I do, that's true. I do. Uh, yeah, I don't like camping, but I do want my beverage to hurt me. <laughs> they also bring out uh, Newsies to the train station. Oh, so fun. newsboys hang out outside of the train station and will like wave their papers around. Um, one newsie later remembered that the local police force would hang around the station, and then one day was like, "Kid, can you hold my stopwatch? I want you to time us while we all fight each other." What? <laughs> um, the cops were all part of a boxing club, and they were practicing. I guess it was a slow day, <laughs> and the kid just had to time the police while they fought each other in front of him. Oh my god. Sounds like a weird day. Yeah. Um, they also had, like, a restaurant outside of the train station that served, like, hot dogs and stuff. There was a lunch counter, a souvenir shop. I don't yeah. know what they sold. They also start doing uh, boat rentals called the Clipper. They can okay. do tours. And by the 1930s and 40s, most of the tents have been replaced by cottages. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a big shift away from the tents. It's all, like, small wooden structures. They're very little tiny square buildings because right. they're meant to look like cabin-sized or tent-sized lots. They're itty-bitty. Mm-hmm. And these cottages have names. Aw. Some of them are, like, pretty normal. Like, it's the Donaldsons. Um, when I was a kid, we used to stay in a cottage up at um, West Hawk that was called Naughty Pine. Aw. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of the ones in Grand Beach were called The Devil's Inn. Okay. Ours were <laughs> That's more fun than Naughty Pine. Hangover Hideaway. Wow. Camp Olive a Twist and Camp Curly. <laughs> Those are cute. Those ones, uh, Camp is spelled with a K and Curly is spelled with a K. Hmm. Sure. All right. Those are cuter. I feel like I feel like cottages still have names, but they're usually like the, the family name or like the beach house. Yes, or or like the name of an animal or like More of tamarack or something. Puns are about partying too hard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ours is just called the Friesen Family Cottage. Uh, yeah. And it's like what? Like get creative, mom and dad. Be funnier. Come on. Suggest yeah. to them the Hangover Hideaway and see <laughs> see how they take it. I think, I think it's pretty funny. They'll they'll take it personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, I think, the point in the beach episode where we talk about Victoria Beach. I feel like it comes up in everyone because you did it. We in... talked about it a little bit in the Winnipeg Beach episode as well. So it's a bit more relevant here because the CNR manage both resorts. Okay. So the CNR manages Victoria Beach, which has a bit of a more exclusive reputation mm-hmm. in that by the 1940s, Leeds feel being like very gatekeepy about who can own a property right. there. So in 1943, a Jewish family buys a cottage in Victoria Beach, and there's mm-hmm. a huge thing in the local newspaper where they're like, we have to keep the undesirables out. Right. And there's kind of a flurry about like keeping the community high class. Mm-hmm. A lot of those like kind of dog whistle things. Yeah, like they're saying undesirables, but right. like you know what they mean. Yeah. Uh, the Winnipeg Free Press, then run by J.W. Defoe, argues against this and says that Victoria Beach is wrong. They're one of the few papers that argues pretty loudly against anti-Semitism in Manitoba at the time. Okay. But I'm assuming that like the whole exclusivity appeal brought people out there who were like, we don't want undesirables around. Right. Right? Like that draw in the first place. Yeah. Created a kind of insular community. For sure. I mean, Victoria Beach is, is I mean, it's very nice. Yeah. But it is a little fancier. It is. What's interesting, too, is that like, Grand Beach is run by the same resort. 
mm-hmm. or the same company, and they don't seem to have any like similar public sentiments that I can find. Like, hmm. probably local beachgoers had some ideas that weren't great, but there's not a lot of like mention of it in the public papers. Right. So, who knows? It's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there were, uh, like, if there were more people building kind of fancier things there too. I guess you know maybe you care less about that if you just have like a tent than if you're building yeah, like totally. a cottage that's and essentially a second I don't think there home. were day trips to Victoria Beach as much as there were to Grand Beach, right? Like you're right. coming out to Grand Beach for an evening and then yeah. going home as opposed to like we're going to live there for the summer. Yeah. That's our second house. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what was going on in Grand Beach. Couldn't find anything. There is like a local newsletter that was published around the time but it's not accessible so mm. I did not look at it. Yeah. Did not have the time. By the 1940s, though, uh, the dance hall was supervised by a man called Bathhouse Harry. I love him already. He uh, ran the bathhouse, which is where you would go in bathing suits. Oh, he ran the bathhouse, you say? Yeah. <laughs> bathhouse so Harry? Harry ran the bathhouse? What are he we talking about? <laughs> yeah. So during the day, he'd run the bathhouse. Okay. And he would rent out bathing suits because at the time, people probably didn't own their own. Hmm. Swimming wasn't a huge thing still by the 1940s. Yeah. And also, the bathing suits weren't super comfortable. No. The 1920s ones were worse. They'd moved up from wool, at least, but (laughs) (laughs) the wool ones look awful. I mean, that would just drag you down, too. Yep. So, Bathhouse Harry, like, kept a pretty strict eye on the dance hall. Mm -hmm. So, they had uh, teenage ticket takers who would stand outside, and they would take the tickets for the dance and then put them in a little box. By the 40s, dances were now 10 cents. They'd been bumped up in price. Wow. And the uh, ticket takers had a little scam going. (gasps) Okay. They would take the ticket pretend to put it in the box, put it in their back pocket, uh-huh. and then sneak behind the dance hall and sell the tickets at a cut-rate price to other people. <laughs> I love that. That's an excellent scam. Yep. Uh, they were only paid a dollar a night, so this was a good way for them to make extra money. You'd make so much more money doing that then. Yep. And they would like buy food and then go home. Yeah. So for campers and the restaurants, the Ice House is now providing ice to everyone. I also found out from someone in Grand Beach that the CNR used to do ice and toilet paper to campers. That was things oh. they would just provide to you for free if you were camping there. That's that's nice. I feel like I could bring my own toilet paper a little more easily than I could bring my own ice. Yep. What would be easier to take on the train for like an hour long ride? For sure. But maybe embarrassing. Yep. You know. And uh, the dance hall does a fun thing where they rent a band for the season. So they'll like hire out the Fort Gary Hotel Orchestra to come oh, out fun. and play in Grand Beach for the summer and then they go home. So yeah. it's like rotating bands. So they have, like, Jackie Hunter and its Rhythm Kings in 1929. Uh, Don Wright's Orchestra in 1942. There's a Gene Deagle and his Arcadians. Nice. Very fun band names. Yeah. And then uh, they also get uh, Wally Myers Orchestra in the late 1940s. Uh, Wally Myers is actually Wally Mizer. Okay. He started as a swing for the band, so he would fill in if someone couldn't make it. Oh. By 1945, he's approached by the band leader for that season and asked if he wants to take over. He agrees, because why wouldn't you? Right. And then he decides to Anglicanize his name. It His name was too ethnic, in his own words, to... What was his original name? Mazur, so M-A-Z-U-R. Okay. So, yeah, not quite as European as Myers. Myers, yeah. So happened, be- happened a lot. Yeah, so he became Wally Myers and his orchestra. They played uh, seven nights a week at the height of the season, sometimes several shows in a night too and band members would then rent cottages in the area for the season nice that'd be a pretty good like summer gig right it seemed like it was pretty fun but uh wally myers is the last person to ever play at the dance pavilion in grand beach oh wow 
So on September 1st, 1950, oh, on September 4th, 1950, the Grand Beach Dance Hall burns to the ground. <gasps> no. Uh, the fire begins at 1135, lasts until three, and there's like 2,000 people watching this happen. Oh. And the wind is like blowing it at first towards the campsite and hotel, but then shifts oh. very quickly to blow the other way. So nothing burns down but the pavilion. I mean, that's good, I guess. Uh, no one was hurt, and like most things were saved in the building. And weirdly, milk comes up again here. And that <laughs> what helped save some of the area is that people took down the milk bar and oh. built a firewall out of it. What? <laughs> okay. So they dismantled the milk bar is just like a place that serves like malted milk and stuff. Sure. They dismantled it and built kind of a wall to block some of the like smoke and fire from getting past. Like as the fire was happening. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought they did that beforehand. And like, <laughs> like, why? Like, we know to something's like, coming. <laughs> some weird foresight to turn yep. the milk bar into a firewall. So Wally Meyer and his orchestra actually had been playing at the dance hall at 2 p- or two a.m. Yeah. that same day. And when did it burn? 11 a.m. So like Uh-oh. they finished their show. They yeah. went home. They went to bed. They woke up to smoke coming out of the pavilion. Their instruments were still inside. Oh, no. They run in. They get everything out except for their piano. Well, you know, be hard to carry out. And for some like unknown reason, they had fire hoses. They just weren't supplying any water pressure. So like they were trying oh, to put no. it out, and just nothing was happening. Oh, no gosh. one really knows what went wrong there. Yeah. The building winds up being uh, demolished completely for obvious reasons. Yeah. I think I have a picture of it. Let's see if I actually saved it. I did not. Okay. Oh well. <laughs> it is somewhere else. We will imagine in our heads what a burned down building looks like. I mean, you could see them in any old picture of Winnipeg. It happens all the time. So they tear it down. It's completely gone. There's still restaurants in the hotel. And like, there's now a drive-in called Harry's Hideaway. Yeah. Or not a drive-in, but like a little like venue movie theater thing. So there's stuff to do. I guess dance halls are becoming a little less of a thing. Yeah, anyway. by the fifties, they're a bit like they're a bit more obsolete than they were in like the nineteen twenties. Right. Yeah, like the fifties, I feel like you'd still go to a dance hall, but in like the sixties, probably not so much. No, a little bit less so. And then also, Highway Fifty Nine is slowly being built out to Grand Beach. So there's now car access to the uh-huh. area, so things are starting to change a little bit in terms of like train access too. Yeah, it's a little less popular. But with the road also comes now a delivery access from Winnipeg. So the uh, People's Co-op starts driving things out to Grand Beach. Okay. Oh, the People's Co-op also came up in our milk episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they delivered milk to Grand Beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's oral histories at the archives from the People's Co-op. I, yeah, I <laughs> use those in my milk episode. Yep. Yeah. Um, so... Most drivers didn't like the Grand Beach run. I mean, that'd be a long drive. Long drive. The vans only went like 50 kilometers an hour. Yeah. So it was slow. Um, that'd, be, that'd be your whole day just driving milk out to Grand Beach then. You probably also hit up like Victoria Beach and stuff along the way. Like there's oh, stops yeah. you could make, but it was like a long drive. You would have to do it pretty quickly before things would melt because the trucks weren't refrigerated yet. It right. was like you a block of ice in time. Yeah. And that was all that was keeping <laughs> this ice cream frozen. Um, one of the drivers who did the Grand Beach route would nice to do the North End instead, and his girlfriend lived on his route, so he would just go to his girlfriend's house instead, <laughs> and just, like, would hang out with her. Oh my god. He got all of his stuff done, but he would then be like, well, I'm gonna go to my girlfriend's for a little bit, see you later. I mean, I guess if he's getting the milk delivery yeah. done, that's fine. So yeah, everyone hated that drive, and, like, the guys in the garage would heckle the drivers for taking too long. <sighs> 
and there was like active ongoing construction because the 59 is still being built. Yeah. <laughs> but with all of this, there's still not, like a lot of car access, so it's still pretty remote, and there's still not a lot of hospital access. The morgue is oh. no longer a thing. Okay, good. But um, this is how we get the Grand Beach Baby. What? <laughs> so this is a headline from the Winnipeg Tribune. This is, this is different than the most beautiful baby. Different than the most beautiful baby. It's Beach Baby Springs Early Arrival. Star Passenger and Baggage Car. This is the headline on July 6th in 1950. Okay. The baby is born to George and Lola Dare three weeks early. Yeah. They decide to take a vacation out to Grand Beach and stay in the hotel. Don't do that when you have a baby due in three weeks. So uh, she goes into labor at about one, one in the morning. Yeah. They call him the local doctor who is around. Okay. That's he good. He comes in and then it's the doctor, the hotel staff, the night manager, and a housekeeper who helped deliver this baby. <laughs> well, George and his children just like hang out. Jeez. Um... The next morning, they take the train to Winnipeg, where the mom is then rushed to the hospital, but there's a reporter waiting at the station to try and catch the family. Yeah. Because obviously, it's a huge thing where it's like, a yeah. baby was born in the hotel, oh my goodness. But the interview they have with the father is really fun. Okay. <laughs> what a shambles, breathed Father George Dare, wordly working on his umpteenth cigarette since one o'clock this morning as ambulance men lifted his wife onto a stretcher. The baby, a six-pounder yet unnamed, lay at his feet, wrapped in mounds of hotel blankets in a cardboard grocery box. <laughs> Two previous children, Bobby, seven, and Diane, four, hadn't helped his I am becoming a father outlook in any way. Oh, no. Three weeks, they told us it would take. He groaned three whole weeks, so we went to cottage at the beach for our holidays, and look what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like, not great planning, I'm gonna be honest. No. No, Also, I I love the mental image of, he's just, like, smoking a cigarette, and the baby's just (laughs) on the ground. In in a a cardboard box. They also described the baby as the Grand Beach Beach Baby had both fists outswung at the world at large and her round mouth mouth wide open for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a cute baby. Very cute baby. The story takes kind of an interesting turn uh, 26 years later, though. Oh. So the reporter for the story is Fred Ed. She gets a letter telling him to reach out to a Susan Bunch. Susan Bunch has reached out to him with her husband, Jim, because she's the Grand Beach Baby. Aww. So she was given up for adoption when she was six <gasps> months old. Oh. She had like a loving family, but no idea of who her birth family was. So she starts looking into it when she becomes a little older. Yeah. Her husband, Jim, also starts looking into it for her. Unbeknownst to Susan, Diana, the like daughter of the family, so the older sister, okay. is also looking for her. Oh. So Diana is four when Susan is born. Right. But their mother passes away in 1973, and Diana... Here's her mom talking about a baby that was born in 1950 and then finds the news clipping for the Grand Beach baby and her mom's stuff. And can, like, vaguely remember this happening. Right. So she starts looking around, too. So she goes to, like, Children's Aid, tries to track her sister down. Susan's doing the same thing, and they're just reaching dead ends both ways. Huh. I mean, that's wild to give up a baby when you have two children already. I mean, like, finances might have been a thing. Like, two kids might have been too much. There's not, like, a reason that they were given up. Yeah. So it's Susan's husband, Jim, who figures it out. Because Jim goes to the archives. Aye. <laughs> he finds the story for the Grand Beach baby. He knew his wife was born that year. He just kind of went through birth announcements until he found something. So they find out that it's Fred Edge who wrote the story. They contact him, and then Fred starts sticking around to try and figure out where the rest of the family is gone. Yeah. The mom has passed away, but he finds a Bobby Dare who works for the CPR in Brandon and reaches out and is like, did you know you have a second sister? Right. And he says no. <laughs> And then it's like, you do, surprise! Jeez. 
So they meet up with all of their children in tow because they're now all married adults with kids. Yeah. 26 years later. That's crazy. Uh, Diana is quoted as saying, Susan had the best of both worlds. She's got two families who love her very, very much. Her adoptive family who gave her so much love over all these years and ourselves who loved her as well and now can love her in person for the rest of our lives. Oh, that's really sweet. Isn't it such a cute little story? Um, weirdly, as I said, it was wild to give up a baby when you already yeah. have children. I remembered that we have a similar thing that happened in, our, in my family. Oh. Okay, so this is like a couple generations yeah. back. Um, so... It was like one of my like great aunts yeah. or whatever. Um, she had been led to believe that she was an orphan and oh. found out later in life that while her mother had died, her dad had still been alive. And I guess they had this new baby and he gave up just the baby. Oh. Because I, I don't know, I guess it was too difficult to yeah. take care of all the children. But it's a super weird thing where she figured this out later in her life, yeah. reached out to her siblings who she had never yeah. known about. And they wrote back being like, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Oh, weird. Yeah. So much nicer to be like, now we can all love each other, other forever. Yeah. It's a very happy ending yeah. of the story. It's very cute. Yeah. But I mean, you see that with like the old like children's orphanage stuff in Winnipeg where it's like during the Great Depression, if they have a kid they can't afford, they're like, well, we'll just give it up for a bit and come back for it later. This is weirdly part of the plot of Annie. I was going to say, it sounds like Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Now, by the time the Grand Beach baby is born, the dance hall is gone, or about to burn down. Yeah. And once it goes, Grand Beach becomes known for its delinquency. Oh, no. There's, like, less to do there. It's, right. like, punk teens coming out to cause problems, <laughs> I guess. Um, a free press article makes some claim that American newspapers are calling it for a hot, like, a hot spot for punk activity. I mean, I feel like the 50s is, like, the invention of the punk teen. It's the punk era. <laughs> <laughs> Punks are coming up. So they don't say what paper it comes up in, and I couldn't find it. So, like, there just might have been some teams hanging out there that people yeah. didn't like. It doesn't help that um, the RCMP pulled out of the area in 1949 due to what they called unreasonable beefing about the detachment's performance. Oh. I do not know what that means. I mean, either. Like, people were complaining about the what? job they were doing, and so they were just like, fine then. We'll get out of here. Yeah. Unreasonable beefing. Yikes. I'd love the story on that, yeah. but I could not find it. So they start stationing, like, municipal cops in the area. I'd like to know if there's reasonable beef beefing. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so by this point, the CNR is like, we gotta get rid of this place. Like, yeah. we're losing money on it. The hotel is, like, not in great shape. No one's really repaired it in a while. The dance hall is gone. No one wants to come here. So they start looking for buyers, and by the late 1950s, they sell it to two individuals only for the deal to fall apart when one of them just dies. Yeah. So they don't have a buyer again. Oh, no. The uh, Grand Beach Association starts talking to uh, Walter Kodachek to see if he'd be interested in buying. He and his wife own a uh, Bill's Grossateria Grand Marais in a store in Toulon and then some arcades. Okay. And then they turn it down because they don't want to run a whole resort. That's a lot of businesses to have. They're like, we know how to do like a grocery store and an arcade. Sure. But the management of an entire beach resort? No, thank you. Yeah. And then in the 1960s, the province begins to express interest in buying it themselves. Oh. This is actually encouraged by the uh, cottagers in the area who want the province to take ownership of it. Sure. So on January 1st, 1961, the province of Manitoba buys Grand Beach. Hmm. And they start like transferring over leases from the cottages from the previous year. So people could still own their own family cottages. Yeah. And they start making some big changes. They want to make it back into more of like a natural park, essentially. So, I mean, most of the like big amenities are gone by this point. I guess it's, that's significantly cheaper to be like, it's going to be a nature park. Yep. (laughs) 
they build a wooden walkway to the marsh, mm-hmm. uh, picnic pavilion, stuff like that. They've like modernized things since the 1960s, obviously. Um, the wooden walkway was destroyed in a storm a while ago. Oh, no. But if you look at the marsh, you can see parts of it. <laughs> okay. Like little weird wooden yeah. islands that look huh. super unsteady. Uh, the hotel and carousel are torn down in 1962. The hotel is basically condemned by 62. Wait, so the government buys the hotel, then immediately knocks it down, essentially? Yeah. Oh. Only the first floor was usable by 62. Oh, okay. And it just wasn't quite worth it to salvage. And yeah. people were not quite as interested in the merry-go-round. So, yeah. Both of those things uh, disappear. The day the carousel's being torn down, the two local boys sneak in and are like, we want to ride it one last time, let us on. And they yeah. get one last ride Aww. on the carousel before it goes. That's nice. And then uh, no one really knows what happened to the Grand Beach Carousel stuff. Like, the horses vanished. Hmm. Except for one. There's one still around? Well, not any- maybe not anymore. Okay. We don't know. It wound up- a woman bought it for her, like, local niche museum, and it kind of bounced around a bit. Okay. It's gonna be your September bonus episode oh. when I write it. Okay. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> um, I think, like, those old carousel horses can be worth money, too. Yes, this is also the plot of an Nancy Drew game, incidentally. It is. <laughs> That's why I know that. (laughs) So much you've learned from those games. I've learned a lot. (laughs) So that is our little journey through the history of Grand Beach. That was really nice. Just a nice little sweet beach episode. Easy peasy. Nothing terrible happened? Well, there's a fire. Okay. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, there's a lot of fires. There's lots of stuff I couldn't, like, fit in because all of the stories are, like, it's local memory that hasn't been written down. So there's, like, a bunch of restaurants that existed that, like, I've heard about for people in Grand Beach that I'm, like... I don't know enough about it to talk about it. Right. Like, we don't know the years. We don't know. Yep. The, yeah. So there's stuff out there that I didn't cover because there wasn't that much information I could find on it. Yeah. Which is how it goes sometimes. That is the overview <laughs> yeah. of Grand Beach. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can check us out on social media at Instagram and Facebook at One Great History. We're on Twitter at the number one Great History. You can support us on Patreon. Our bonus episode this month is about the first person to swim Lake Winnipeg. Ah, nice. It'll be a fun one. Uh, there is no collected conversations this month because we're all working now, so we're busy. We yeah. didn't have the time. <laughs> this is the first time in podcast history we've all had jobs at the same time. Yeah, we yeah. are all employed. Congrats to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing great and we're not tired. <laughs> yeah. I know when they showed up tonight, they were just like, you look tired. I'm like, I'm so tired. Like, it was just like running around all day and like working. And yeah. We're working stiffs now on top of doing this podcast. Yeah. yeah. So support us on Patreon, please. <laughs> so we can quit these jobs and be podcasters. Mr. full time. That $5 a month will go so far between three adults. <laughs> Honey, we're paying the mortgage through Patreon. <laughs> can the mortgage be less? Yeah. Can, can you go ask the bank that? Just like, yeah. hey, can I, can I play, pay less money? Can I not pay rent anymore? Yeah. yeah. I only make $5 a month. <laughs> well, we have to split it three ways. You see, Mr. Banker? <laughs> We're trying our best. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in September. Yeah.